Hello and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast. We're David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. Today we're lucky to have the laughing Dana Settle hey Dana. from Graycroft Partners. She is OGLA for sure, one of the few later stage investors, and by later I mean A and beyond, in Los Angeles, one of the few bigger funds, and has been here for how many years? Uh, about 14. 14 years in LA, and uh, I've known Dana for a while and continue to respect her and think she's one of the greats here in LA. So welcome. Thank you. Great. Thanks for being here, Dana. Really appreciate you coming on the pod. I think I know more about Greycroft than I do about you. So like, where did you grow up? <laughs> uh, I grew up in Seattle, actually in a little town outside of Seattle called Gig Harbor. What did your parents do? My father's a lawyer, real estate, land use and real estate lawyer. And my mother was a French teacher oh. and stay-at-home mom. Got it. Um, Super exciting. Well, no, it, it is. <laughs> it, it's interesting to know where folks are from. Um And so give us a little bit of background that led up to Graycroft. So I started out my career actually working for a company called Macaw Cellular Communications, which was an independent wireless company that ultimately became AT&T Wireless. And I loved what I did. I went and bid on cellular spectrum uh, overseas. So in India was the first market that we bid on, and it was an incredible experience. And the team was this amazing startup team that ultimately ended up going to um, be the management team at Netscape. So Jim Barksdale, um, Roberta Katz, sort of whole team from there. And I knew everything there was to know about cellular spectrum. Interesting. You know, I bid on spectrum myself. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. I once had to go to the Google board and ask for $5 billion to buy some nationwide license. Well, Interestingly, I went to the AT&T board hmm. and asked for a billion dollars oh. to buy Spectrum in India. So we could compete. So <laughs> yeah. we could get, yeah, we bid so against of course, Mini again wins $5 billion, uh, Well, billion. we lost our, we lost. <laughs> we didn't win any Spectrum. We won. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, did that, knew probably more than anybody at that point in time about cellular Spectrum internationally, but felt at some point that that was sort of a little too deep, too narrow. Um, and so... When uh, Macaw sold to AT&T, I went and worked for Lehman Brothers in New York in their tech and entertainment practice and loved that too. When did business school fit in there? You guys have another thing in common, which is HBS. Yep. God. Which is fine. <laughs> so I'm not complaining. Just fine. David does not like business school. No, 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 no. no, it's okay. <laughs> he wouldn't be the only person. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I got into venture. I worked in uh, venture at Mayfield uh, in Silicon Valley for... Four years from 1998 to 2001, and then I went back to business school. Good and bad times. Correct. <laughs> but then, so Graycroft, you're now investing out of Fund 5, but you got this started, you're investing out of Fund 5, and you got this started in 2006 with Alan. How did you guys come together? How did you decide to set this up in L.A. and New York? So I moved to L.A. Uh, in 2000, end of 2005. I had actually just, I was part of a company called Truvio, which was a video search company, and we sold it to, ultimately to AOL, but there was a bidding war between MySpace and AOL for Truvio, John Miller and and Ross Levinson. Mm -hmm. And I had been spending a bunch of time down here through that transaction, and I decided that it would be interesting to come and actually move down here for a while. And I thought I would be here for a year, and that was... 14 years ago. Hmm. Um, and uh, the more time that I spent down here, the more I realized there was a real opportunity to actually 
start something because there weren't a lot of venture funds down there, down here at that time. And so I was actually kind of talking to a few folks about putting together a very small fund myself. And um, actually, Mark Andreessen had very kindly introduced me to Michael Ovitz when I first moved down here. And and so I was talking to Michael about this concept, sort of a small fund and bringing together kind of entertainment and, and technology. And um, in one week, three different people introduced me to Alan Patrickoff and said, you know, Alan is leaving Apex Partners and kind of thinking about a small fund concept himself. Maybe you guys should sit down and meet. So we met and weirdly completely saw eye to eye um, on the opportunity. It was clear that there was disruption happening in certainly the media industry at that point in time. Um, And that was obviously in an area that was kind of ripe for somebody coming in and, and focusing on from a venture standpoint. Right. But what year, what year was that? 2006. So did you see enough or how did you see enough here in the market when it seemed like it seemed kind of dead in 2006? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, New York was maybe a little further along. Um, but in general, we had this small fund concept and having a small fund concept meant that we could find opportunities where, you know, if you invested a million dollars and the company sold for 50 to a hundred million dollars, um, that that was actually a really good outcome. And it's not to say that that's not still a good outcome. It absolutely is. And I, you know, I always say that, but there were a lot of those smaller opportunities and, and we invested in a number of them. I mean, we invested in uh, paid content, which was sort of the fir- one of the first blogs dedicated to the digital media industry. And we ended up selling that to Guardian Media. Um, we invested in a company in New York uh, called Pump Audio, which we sold to Getty Images. It was sort of Getty Images for audio. And, you know, those companies sold for like, I don't know, I think 35 and $50 million each. You know, again, we were making these small investments and making good returns. Um, And then I think the thing that, you know, sort of the biggest thing that happened was really YouTube taking off as far as creating a set of opportunities that were much larger in terms of scale. So first off, we just haven't done a good enough job of just hyping how big you have become since these early days. You have over a billion dollars under management at this point. I think 1.4. 1.4. That's that's 400 million between friends. Yeah, 400 million there and there. Um, But uh, but you started with um, some digital media focus is what we're talking about here. Um, How do you evaluate digital media? Like, how do you look at, is it the same as evaluating any other opportunity? You look at the traction, you look at the founders, um, or are there some nuances to how you think about what's a good opportunity in media? Well, I would say at the moment, we don't think there are a lot of good opportunities oh, in media. That's interesting too. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, we, different companies, whether it's B2C or B2B, have a different set of metrics and different things that we're looking for. So with B2C companies, it certainly is about, you know, user traction, engagement, revenue, retention, repeat purchasing, sort of all of those things, and really growth. Um, and organic growth, not not paid growth. And on enterprise, I mean, it, it is pretty straightforward because it really is just looking at like the, you know, looking at revenue and, and monthly revenue and, and revenue retention. And um, it's it's actually pretty straightforward. But digital media really is no different in a lot of ways than, than e-commerce companies because you're just looking at the, the users and the usage. Why do you think there's no good opportunities now? In media? Yeah. <laughs> or fewer. <clears throat> I think there are fewer. Um, we're investors in Axios, which I think is an excellent company. So plug for Axios if you don't 
read it every day. You should. And, um, and you know, overtime sports we're in, which is a great sports media company. But what's happened is that the largely the platforms have, have just become so large as it relates to advertising dollars that when you get above a certain level, so I think you can build, um, niche media properties into kind of 50 million in revenue businesses. But when you get above that and you start having to, you know, regularly, um, be looking at sort of million plus dollar deals, then you're competing with the platforms. And that's, that's a difficult, difficult thing to compete with. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of media is driven by distribution now. And so if the platforms own it all, it makes it hard. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about Graycroft today. So you're mostly doing seed, I mean, you're mostly doing Series A, Series B investing, and then you've also got a growth fund. Right? Seed and Series A. Seed and so Series A. So we've always been first round investors, just to, let me just like set the record straight. And first round has changed what that means. So, you know, what used to be a Series A is now a seed. And so we still invest in seed companies. So we do seed and series A in our core early stage fund. We'll follow on in terms of B and occasionally we'll do a series B out of our core early stage fund. And then we have a growth fund that we invest in companies sort of series C and beyond. You know, as, as we sort of look at the market though, the the stages have changed so much that we really just look at, you know, it's sort of first round of capital coming into a company. And then as far as sort of the growth fund, companies that have really proven their model and it's it is about essentially just funding funding rapid growth. And how much of that is still in LA? Your um, investments? Growth fund or early stage or all of it? All of it. All of it. It's a good question. I mean, I would guess probably twenty to thirty percent of our capital is in LA um, versus everywhere else. But you know, it, it swings. Back in the two thousand six days or, or in the early funds, did you have trouble getting folks to follow on? from Northern California? Because there wasn't sort of native capital here to do Bs and Cs. Hmm. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, there was just less capital, period. I mean, there were fewer, fu- there were so, I mean, you so many fewer funds. Yeah, on, I mean, there were, exactly. One or two hands. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, I think everything was harder. I mean, it was, it was harder to raise follow-on rounds, period. Um, and so... You know, I think only the companies that really broke out were the companies that were able to attract follow-on capital from anywhere. Um, and the others really, you know, sort of sold quickly or or didn't. So what is actually, this is something our, our portfolio is always asking us at the seed stage, which is what is good traction now for Series A? For us, we really do like to see companies that actually have product in the market, that have early sales, and that really, it's not so much exactly like what the, what the, amount is like, are you at a million, you know, in revenue? Are you at, you know, five? It's really, what are we seeing in terms of like user engagement and just excitement around the product and, and just the, the, the velocity of growth and the, and repeat usage or purchasing or retention. I mean, that's what we're sort of looking at. It doesn't necessarily have to be over a long period of time, as long as you sort of see that velocity. But what if it has been a long period of time? Like sometimes I think that seems like a turnoff because mm. they've been slogging around for three years. But sometimes I think, well, they've had three years of learning and now they've got it. And if it's kind of taking off now, what do you think? Like if it's been too long of a slog, it's sort of um, a red flag. It's so, it's so, you know, it and it, yeah, it depends. But um, 
you know, I mean, there is a thing about momentum, right? I mean, it's sort of an object emotion stays emotion. I mean, it's sort of, you know, there, there's a, you know, I do think there's a certain momentum to the business that it's not just about, you know, is the user growth there? It's kind of the energy of the team, you know, is the team still so energized yeah. and really see it? And you can, you know that, I mean, you can feel it when you walk into a company, if you know, if the team is really still energized or if people are sort of mailing it in. Sometimes I feel we see companies where the fundraising momentum and the business momentum are out of sync. <laughs> yeah. A lot. A lot. <laughs> and usually the fundraising is in front. Well, actually, I've seen both, yeah. But, yeah. But, yeah. but we see it very often. How do you how do you pick that apart? Well, that's when you really get into the data. And 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 that's where, you know, I mean, but and and interestingly though, I mean, if you think about what is critical to a founder's success or a company's success, I mean, fundraising is a major component of it. And so I mean, we look at that in terms of founders and their ability to fundraise is a really key core competency. So as much as like on the one hand, you could say, oh, you know, the momentum and the valuation are so far ahead. On the other hand, when you're part of that team and on that boat, like that's great. So we kind of try to balance those two things of, you know, not wanting not wanting something to be so purely based on momentum that there aren't any fundamentals or any hope for there to be, you know, a sort of fundamentally interesting business. But that's a real, I mean, that is a huge asset for, um, for any startup. So when you're doing a series A and you say that you're first institutional money, will you, will you do a series A that you didn't do the seed that you didn't lead the seed for and, some seed fund did the seed, but so it's yeah. entry A is still a good entry point for you. Yes. Okay. I absolutely. thought so. I was just double checking. Yes, absolutely. And so for then a series A. We miss things all the time. So. Got it. We, we just don't want to miss them too many times. Right. Too many rounds. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's hard to know. Uh, um, but so do you run up with Sand Hill Road a fair amount right now or with, with the Bay Area funds now for the deals? Like when you're looking at who your competition is for deals, is it a lot of times the Bay Area? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I so, sometimes, but not all the time. Um I mean, I'm just trying to think about the last, you know, several deals that we've done. I mean, I feel like so many things sort of come directly out of our n- network too that it's not I don't feel that as much. Um but there are certainly things that I think, you know, barrier funds have come down and they're probably more aggressive about funding things in bigger ways earlier than we are. And I think that's where we've missed out. Right. They're probably willing to put bigger valuations on less traction. Yeah. And write bigger checks. Again, I think a function of, to a certain degree, fund size and being willing to take greater risk with, you know, like a $10 million check for us would be a very big check out of our early stage fund. I mean, we've never written a $10 million check out of our early stage fund. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, in first round, we've put $10 million into companies, but but in the first round, we've not. Actually, let's just make sure we get the 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 structure of Graycraft because you've got um you've got your is it it's a $250 million fund yeah. that, you, that is your fund 5, which is your early stage fund. Yes. I'll let you explain it rather than me try to. <laughs> yeah. You're doing a great I, job. <laughs> I, I retract all that stuff I said at the beginning about the bigness of your <laughs> of your fund. <laughs> So then you've got, uh, you're investing out of a your second growth fund, right? Yeah. Currently, so fifth core early stage fund, that's a $250 million fund. And second growth fund, that's a $250 million fund as well. And why do the growth fund? 
Because that's a newer thing for you, right? Well, we started it five years ago. Um, and really, like, our, which, which is new. Relative. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, but our, um, our goal has always been to follow our founders and sort of do what makes their life easier and to, you know, provide capital when they need it and, you know, to really be able to sort of follow on our, our winners. And we want to be full life cycle investors. We want to be the first check-in. We want to be the last check-in. I mean, so that when founders go to start their companies again, we're still very much in the picture. So our growth fund is split pretty equally 50-50 between Graycroft companies and, um, and new investments. Got it. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, no, that was really useful. And I sort of think of Dylan as being um, focused on the growth stuff and you and Mark, and I know the LA folks, apologies to New York, but um, I don't pay as much attention there. <laughs> um, but but you're, you're- They're important too. I, 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 I acknowledged. <laughs> um, but, uh, but here in LA, Dylan is, has a focus on growth. You and Mark are um, focused early. I don't know everyone here. Um, but I think I've got that. Yeah. So we, so, so actually the way that we, you know, as a fund function, I sort of split my time between growth and, and early stage, but I focus mostly on consumer investing. Uh, Mark focuses mostly on, uh, early stage and focuses mostly on, on enterprise. Dylan is a hundred percent focused on growth. Um, and actually Dylan was a, was an intern with us when he was at Wharton in business school in 2010, summer of 2010. And worked with me on the on Trunk Club and the Real Real, which were both great companies. And but when he graduated from business school, we didn't have a growth fund, and he had a growth background. And so uh, he went and took a job at another growth fund. And then when we raised our growth fund, he I called him. He was in Boston, and I said, "Well, we have a growth fund now." <laughs> and, Perfect. And he came. So very lucky. And so is LA actually better than New York? That's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I wrote here. <laughs> Yes. Uh, do they, <laughs> is there any structural differences between what LA sees and what New York sees? Um, structural differences. No, differences I mean differences in valuations. We, or? No, I mean, look, we we do our we actually do function as one firm. Um, so we do our Monday morning deal calls. Well, you've yep been there. I've, I've actually <laughs> been, been on there. One. Yeah. So wow. we actually, I mean, we like to to do that, but. Um, we go through, you know, all of the deals all together. And the reason that we do that is so that, because what will happen a lot of times is there will be, you know, a company starting in New York and a company starting in LA and maybe one in Seattle, all in the same market space, generally speaking. And, and you know, different people are looking at them. And so we want to make sure we're kind of getting all of that feedback in, um, you know, sort of in real time instead of waiting and then all of a sudden being like, wait, but I'm far along in a company in, you know, New York or LA. So we really do try to sort of manage our deal flow as one group. How digital does a company need to be? Like what's inbounds and outbound, <laughs> out of bounds for you? Excellent question. <laughs> we do struggle with this sometimes because, you know, um, but really the, the customer experience has to be initiated digitally. I'd say, I think is in some way, shape or form, um, for a consumer, consumer business. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, we don't. I mean, it's it's it, it. There can be you know gray areas. Aren't all a lot of the D to C now also physically? You know, aren't the Warby Parkers of the world all physical? But you would invest in a. I mean, obviously, a- you you would. But I mean, still the while they have physical presence, you probably still start somehow from an app or from some sort of a 
digital experience or there is a digital experience as part of the, is, is, you know, a component of the business. And where, I mean, again, the businesses just have to be like technology enabled or technology oriented businesses where, you know, they're leveraging data. They're just doing things with data and technology to make the businesses much more efficient. Isn't that going to be every business? It's going to be every business. Absolutely. But that's why I think we're seeing such interesting things happening right now where, you know, it used to be all the technology companies that were the big acquirers. And now it's, you know, I mean, if I look at the last, our last acquisitions, I mean, Target, you know, acquired, shipped, um, no, I'm going to forget, but like literally I feel like the last like five acquisitions of ours have been from very mainstream companies. Do you invest a lot out of incubators, accelerators, those sorts of programs or? Some, I mean, we've, we've definitely done some seed investments out of accelerators. Um, and, uh, gosh, I have to look, but I mean, we've made some investments out of Mucker, out of Amplify here. Um, you know, Techstars, I think in New York, so, absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to just be useful to entrepreneurs and help guide yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we think that those programs can be fantastic. I mean, I think they're great ways to learn and jumpstart the business, and jumpstart your business, jumpstart your knowledge and sort of understanding. But otherwise, I mean, so much of our sort of inbound is through, I'd say like inbound and outbound is like through our existing entrepreneurs. I mean, it's referrals through our founders and, you know, employee executives on their teams. And I mean, that's always been our greatest source of, of referrals. And, and frankly, I mean, we think that's the way that it should be because we think if we're doing our jobs well, that people want to refer business to us. But how, how often do you find a company out in the wild that you just go chase down? Like, did you, did bird come bird. to you? No, we you? bird, we went and chased down. Yeah, for sure. Um, along with everybody else. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think about like our last several investments to give good examples. But we, I mean, I mean, shipped, which was in Birmingham, Alabama. I mean, that came through a referral from somebody in one of our companies. I can't remember. And, you know, I mean, Ian, my partner in New York and one of our associates in New York, like got on a plane, flew down to Birmingham and, and, you know, negotiated a deal with Bill Smith. He actually, in that case, wanted to go out to Silicon Valley and, you know, meet with all the funds. And so we kind of, I mean, it was interesting. We gave him a term sheet and we said, sure, go ahead and go. You know, if you want to go to Sand Hill Road, go to Sand Hill Road. And and the reality is like those firms weren't going to come to him. I mean, most of them. And so still, I mean, Birmingham is, you know, two, two plane, two yeah. stops. So and 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 that that was, a, I mean, phenomenal outcome. And we're actually working with him on his next company. So you've got a big network because you've been doing this for uh, since 2006, um, but you've also got a, a team in place. And I'd love to, you have a couple venture partners and at least uh, Stuart sitting next Stuart, door, he's yeah. an operating partner, right? Yes. Um, can you tell us a tiny bit about what the, the structure is and what an operating partner means to you? So, yeah, so we brought on Stuart as, as uh, our first operating partner um, last year, I think, end of last year. What Stuart has been doing is sort of twofold. He, he works somewhat internally um, with us, with the firm, with the whole team. But he also works with our companies, and he does uh, two things. He sort of, for every new investment, he does an onboarding with them. And I think that is a hugely valuable thing for early stage companies is, to, is this onboarding process where he sits down and he really walks through kind of, how, what should they be thinking about now that they've taken on venture funding? I mean, thinking about, you know, everything from, uh, uh, recruiting to board meetings to, 
um, you know, HR and policies and culture and, and all of it. And he does this kind of like crash course with them. And I've, I've only sat in one of them, but it's fascinating because it's a lot of things that you don't think about until you, until you have to think about them. And he sort of brings them all up early and then he kind of goes back over time and sort of checks in on, on them too. So that's been a really, I think, helpful thing and also process for us to have somebody have a company onboarded. Um, we also recently hired a head of platform in New York and she does a similar onboarding with companies and figures out all of the um, opportunities for intersection um, between our companies and uh, and with our network more broadly. So again, I think those are two huge assets. And, uh, and then we hired another um, venture partner um, in the Bay Area, Allison, who is, she was a CMO at Stripe um, and uh, before that VP of marketing at LinkedIn for years. And, um, and she is really helping our companies on the marketing side with everything from recruiting, which is probably the biggest, um, biggest challenge with a lot of our companies is hiring a CMO, um, to um, actual tactical marketing plans and, and organizations and things. And so, and Stuart and Allison sometimes do like a tag team sales and marketing, you know, sort of deep dive with, with companies. So you also have one or two tracker funds. Did you know (laughs) I was going there? Yeah. Yeah, Uh, we do. Can you, uh, can you tell me a little bit about, I I didn't really know the name. What's the other word that people sometimes use Uh, an affiliate fund, maybe? I don't know. I made it up then. Yeah. Um, what's a tracker fund? A tracker fund. Well, um, so our our first tracker fund, I don't even I don't remember now why we called it a tracker fund. I think it was sort of tracking companies for our core fund. But uh, we did it with a guy, John Goldman, who's a venture partner with us, still is. Um, and he had run a really large video game studio. Um, had sort of a thousand people in offices all around the world. And we thought that it was an area that was really interesting, but maybe needed a little bit of a different approach than our kind of core fund. And so it was um, focused on video games and a little AR and VR and kind of new forms of interactive entertainment at the seed stage. And so we did that with John. And I think he's invested in, geez, I don't know, probably 25 companies or something in that fund. A couple of them have crossed over to great, to our core fund. But it's a really interesting way to learn to go deeper on a sector with somebody with real sector expertise who can kind of run autonomously um, and where we have, you know, oversight. And actually he has an associate that sits here with us and they sit in our Monday meeting. And so they kind of are integrated and sort of go through the, you know, deal flow, but really run independently. And then we have a fund that we're managing now or a pool of capital with Albertsons and, that actually came out of an acquisition. We sold a company to Albertsons called Plated. Uh, and when we sold Plated, um, we started spending time with the Albertsons team and the private equity firm behind Albertsons. And they realized that, you know, we see all of these really interesting early stage companies in direct-to-consumer CPG and retail technology and, you know, data and analytics. And they oftentimes are a either a, you know, a distributor for these products or, uh, you know, a customer of these technologies and really helped to scale a lot of those businesses because Albertsons is, is such a huge um, footprint. And so sort of the, again, partnership 
developed kind of organically. So we're now managing a $50 million fund that we invest in kind of seed stage companies in CPG and, and, uh, and uh, retail tech. That's very cool. Um, but they didn't have but, like a corporate venture arm no. themselves. So this is kind no, of No, this is, I guess, kind of their corporate venture arm. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if they would fund. say that. It's a, tr- it's a tracker, tracker fund. fund. <laughs> tracker, tracker. Um, but it, the interesting thing for us, I think, is um, we are also investors in Thrive Market. And Thrive Market is very left of center in terms of, uh, you know, kind of consumer products and grocery. And Albertsons is super mass. And so having those two perspectives is incredibly valuable um, when we're looking at, comp- you know, at direct-to-consumer products uh, because you really get the full spectrum. Great. Um, so I need to sneak in. I know we're over time, but I need to sneak in sort of this discussion of just um, how you manage it all. And you're on eight boards now and or eight private boards, one public board, and you still find time to be a wonderful mentor. And I appreciate that. And how do you how do you fit it all in? And how do you think about mentorship? Let me ask you concretely uh, about mentorship, because I know it's something you care a lot about. I do. I mean, I, I feel like I've had such great mentors. And I think mentors always take different forms. And, um, you know, I've had, I, I feel like I've had, you know, my own partners as mentors. I feel like I've had uh, just friends and colleagues who've been great mentors. And, you know, I think that just means like being there and answering questions and, and you know, uh, sort of at random times and not necessarily in such a structured um, way. I think, you know, for me, probably the most important mentorship that we can provide is actually to our associates and our firm. And so I do, um, you know, and, and, and we all do spend time weekly with our associates, making sure that, you know, we're going through companies and, and really trying to, you know, sort of help them get reps and understand the the thinking behind different companies. Cause at the end of the day, I mean, it's just such a pattern recognition business, but I just find so much value. I mean, it's probably selfish. I mean, I find so much value in spending time, you know, with you many, I mean, with, you, David, whenever we get to it, karate or wherever, you know, that might be. But like, I, because we have such different backgrounds and such different perspectives and approaches that, um, you know, there's always something that I figure I'm like, wow, I can't believe I hadn't thought about that. I appreciate it. I, it's one of the things I cite when people ask about mentorship. I said I moved to a new city, and Dana Settle, who's one of the most busy people in LA, said, "Would you like to have a monthly coffee together?" And I appreciate that. I think we could wrap up unless you have something else. No, I think this has been great, and it's really uh, I could spend another hour easily, but it's been great to talk to you, and uh, this is going to be a great episode. You know, I was going to ask on. about yeah. like <laughs> email, like email responsiveness. I hate email. Oh. Because it like rules your life. Because it feels like yeah. a to do list that yes. someone else created for you. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like talking to people. I like it when people call. Oh. Yeah. I, I like, like talking to people. I mean, I don't like having long conversations, <laughs> but I like actually just. I feel like you get so much more done in a quick phone conversation than in a ten thread email exchange where something's misunderstood or something's you know. Yeah. Not accomplished. But how do you live in a world where other people expect you to read their emails? (laughs) (laughs) No, I just like it's a tough reality of the world. Prioritization. Yeah. I mean, I'm an inbox ten thousand. We have discussed this, David and I. 
Yeah. Right there with you. I'm, I'm just yeah. zen. I've just, I said, yeah. I think. I'm it's fine a, with it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I don't like the email ruling my life thing either, but I, I hate to leave founders hanging. That's, and I hate to drop the ball. Uh, that I 100% ball. agree with. And I do try to be responsive to founders. Like that, I mean, you know, that's why I said like prioritization. Like to me, it's sort of like if one of my partners, if a founder, if one of my investors really needs to reach me, like I, that I feel like I am mostly <laughs> very responsive to. Um, and my, you know, my assistant knows that too. So it's kind of, I mean, we really do try to be very responsive to that. But there's so much that comes in that is not urgent and frankly just pick up the phone if there's something you really and you can't do it all no so no no yeah. Yeah. david can no <laughs> inbox so great 10, to meet you yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I know. Zen. laughs> i'm kidding I know.